We are talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We're going to be in John 12 today. John 12, uh, going on to verse 19. John 12, 12 through 19. Uh, This celebrates the beginning of the Passion Week. The beginning of what's called the Holy Week. Uh, This is where Jesus declares uh, himself as king. All the people were hoping for that. They were expecting that. They were looking for that. And Jesus makes clear that he is indeed the king, not only of Israel, and the king not only of the world, as we'll see even in this passage as well, uh, but the king of everything. The king of the universe. The king of all that is. And if he's the king, that makes a difference. Uh, It has an impact in our lives. Um, Whenever there's a new president... He makes changes, right? That's what always happens, for better or for worse. Whether you like him or or not, uh, a new president makes changes. Well, infinitely more so (laughs) when Jesus the King comes, that makes an impact. That has an impact on our lives. That changes things. If he's the King, uh, that affects us even today. Uh, Before Jesus came, there were all the prophecies about the King who is coming and all these expectations about him. Here in the passage, the king is present. He's there with his people. But now, here we are today, we look back and say, the king has come. And what effect does that have? Let's look with me here at John 12, 12 through 19. John 12, 12 through 19. Uh, we, it's going to be up on the screen. It's, uh, there are pew Bibles if you'd like as well. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The king has come. There should be an outline in your bulletin. If you have your bulletin with you and you're somebody who likes to follow along, uh, we're going to look at how, what the impact of this king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus, is, makes even on us today. But first, do not fear. Do not fear because the king has come. Look at verses 12 to 14. We're going to walk through the passage a little bit, talk through it, and then talk about its application. But it starts off the next day. The next day after what? Well, in the previous section, Jesus has gone um, to, uh, towards Jerusalem to celebrate, uh, have a little dinner, basically with Lazarus, whom he had recently raised from the dead, um, and his two sisters. They gave a dinner uh, six days before the Passover. So this is the next day. So now we're at five days before the Passover. Passover happens on Friday. Jesus is raised on Sunday morning, so we're on Sunday, the Sunday before, or literally one week before uh, the resurrection, which is what we celebrate today. The next day, a large crowd had come to the feast. Now, you have to understand that Jesus, by this time in his ministry, uh, he's become pretty famous. <laughs> he's become pretty recognizable. Uh, so he has had a three-year public ministry 
Um, he's done numerous miracles. His teaching just draws in large crowds. Um, so at one point, we know there were 5,000 men. And it says not including women and children. So what, maybe 10,000, 15,000 people gathered around him? Actually, for a while, people thought you can't really... They thought they maybe exaggerated because they said you can't really talk to that many people without you know, amplification, as we <laughs> found out a little bit this morning. It's hard without microphones. Um, but actually, Jesus was very smart. When you look at it, he oftentimes spoke next to a lake, which would create a certain um, audio effect. Or he would speak on a hillside, on a mountain, where there would be a projection of his voice. Actually, we know that George Whitfield, George Whitfield was sort of the Billy Graham of the 1700s. Uh, George Whitfield, without any uh, electronic magnification, would speak to tens of thousands of people. And we know that because um, Benjamin Franklin was a friend of his. Ben Franklin never came uh, a believer in Jesus Christ as, as his savior, but he was a close friend of George Whitfield, and he measured the crowd. Uh, he kind of measured a certain portion of the crowd and magnified that by the how many people are in that small portion. Uh, and then he would magnify that by the size of the crowd, and there were tens of thousands of people. So we know you can talk to tens of thousands of people um, without any magnification. Here, this is a large crowd. Um, it's in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. Actually, it's really the only city that would count of any significance in Israel of that time period. Uh, You've got to understand that Israel is about the size of New Jersey, land-wise. It's not, it's not huge. And in, that, and in that nation, the nation of Israel, there weren't too many big cities. In fact, there was only really one. That's Jerusalem. Uh, and during this time of the year, um, it swelled, the population swelled. Because it says he comes to them during the feast. So what feast is that? That's referring to the Passover. Uh, there are four major feasts in Judaism. The biggest one, uh, the most significant one, is the Passover. Everybody knows the stories. You've seen uh, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, right? And you see all this idea of, of, of Israel being led out of Egypt, out of Egypt into freedom. Uh, they celebrate the Passover where God passed over um, their, the doors of the, that had the blood on them. It's a, really a symbol of Christ and his protection. So here's the point, friends. You have the biggest rabbi of that day, the most famous rabbi of the day, uh, Jesus is controversial, to say the least, but nevertheless, the most famous rabbi that everybody wants to see, coming to the biggest city, by far, in Jerusalem, uh, in, in all of Israel, Jerusalem, which is the city where the temple is, where the Sanhedrin is, where all the leaders are, on the biggest time of the, at the biggest time of the year, the biggest celebration, the biggest feast of the year. This is, this is big time, <laughs> what's happening here. Biggest rabbi, biggest city, biggest feast. He comes in, and people begin, verse 13, to take branches of palm trees. Uh, palms were a sign of kind of nationalism. That was kind of a sign of Judea, uh, of Israel, excitement about their, their country. Uh, some of their coins had palm branches on them. So it would almost be like waving an American flag. You know, that's kind of the idea, as he comes riding into Jerusalem. And they begin shouting, things that clearly seem to be pointing to the fact that he's king. Hosanna is a phrase that means save us. Save us. And by save us, they're not thinking about necessarily eternal salvation. They're thinking about save us from the Romans. Save us. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, he's special. He's the anointed one. And then, and then they even declare openly the king of Israel. Which is dangerous, by the way, because Israel was under Roman occupation. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't allowed to have their own king. Uh, well, you could say, well, what about King Herod? 
Well, Herod was a puppet king placed there by the Romans. He was allowed to rule over part of Israel, not, not Jerusalem, but the other part of Israel under the Caesar's authority. In Jerusalem, all you had was a governor, Pontius Pilate, no king. A king would be in rebellion against the state. And yet here, Israel is crying out, looking for their king in Jesus. Verse 14, what does Jesus do about this? All this attention, all this praise, all this declaration of him being the king, the coming king. Jesus finds a donkey, he sits on it, and he rides in, receiving their declaration of kingship. Because it fulfills prophecy, verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion, it's another name for Israel, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Fulfilling prophecy that the Messiah, that the king of Israel comes in on the donkey. Actually, there's one little change in that phrase, by the way. Uh, The original, Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice, daughter of Zion. And here John kind of changes it and says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. That kind of fits, right? Those are two different emotions. If you're fearful, you're probably not joyful. If you're joyful, you're probably not fearful. Sometimes they can come together, but for the most part, those two go together. Being not fearful, being joyful. Because the king is here. If the king is here, it makes a difference. What difference does it make? It means we should not fear. And you might say, well, what is he talking about? What do we fear? Uh, what fear is relieved? Um, we fear a lot of different things. I'm not sure what you fear. Some people fear snakes. How many people fear snakes? A handful. I don't have a problem with snakes. Spiders? Quite a few people fear spiders. Uh, how many people fear fire? I know that uh, that's a fear for, for my wife. Um, how many people fear you know, small spaces, claustrophobia. That's me. That's me. The thought of being trapped in a small box, that is what actually frightens me. Um, I'm not scared of anything. I'm not scared of heights, fire, water, drowning. All that stuff doesn't really scare me all that much. But the idea of being trapped into like a coffin scares me for some reason. That's my fear. But there's then also greater fears that really are kind of uh, true of all of us and true of all people. What do we fear? We fear perhaps that this world is all there is to it. I was talking to somebody just recently who said, how do we know? How do we know there's anything beyond death? How can we know? Is this all there is to it? Is there nothing more than this? There's a certain despair about it. Thoreau said that, um, I lost the quote, had it in my mind a minute ago. But he, he, that all men are, seek, are filled with desperation. All men are filled with desperation. Or think of Stephen Hawking, the famous astrophysicist who died just this was a week ago from now. Stephen Hawking originally is a brilliant scientist, perhaps the most brilliant scientist in our day. Uh, he wrote his first book, and people thought maybe, maybe he believes there's a God, because he kind of references it. But then towards the end of his life, he made it clear. He doesn't. He said, it's like a computer. When a computer stops working, that's it. There's nothing more to it. Our bodies and our minds are nothing more than computers. And when they come to an end, there's nothing after the grave. We fear perhaps that there's nothing more to this world than what we can see with our eyes. Fear not. Your king is coming. And he has a very different story about us as human beings created in the image of God who are restored into relationship with him and what he will do with this world in the end. Maybe we fear that there is no real hero, uh, that there is no real great person. You know, everybody wants a hero. 
We make up heroes. We make up, because we don't have any great heroes sometimes in this world. We make up heroes. That's why we have Superman, right? He's, a, he's beyond. He has powers beyond our world, and he's good. He's always good. Or if you don't like, if you're more into the Marvel world, then you have Captain America, whatever. You have some superhero who's truly good. Because we know all the people in this world, they have sort of clay feet, going back to our Daniel series. They have problems. Nobody's really perfect. Everybody has issues. I mean, I, I think of some of the people we raise up to be uh, heroes in this world. Mother Teresa, right? Some people say, there's an example of somebody who is nearly perfect. Well, Mother Teresa said that she struggled with doubts for much of her whole life, doubting whether there is even a God. Or you might point to Martin Luther King. I mean, a man who spent his life not only as a Christian, but somebody who was fighting against injustice and racism. It's pretty well documented that Martin Luther King was a serial adulterer. Billy Graham, the great Billy Graham, and I think, you know, when, th- when you think of somebody who is um, close to what we believe in terms of our, about the Bible, very close to what we believe, and a man who modeled it by his life and his witness, and he's so close, it's almost as if God sort of reminds us that there's no perfect people. There's that recording of him talking to Nixon that became public where he spoke badly about the Jews, and he said specifically, I don't remember that conversation, but I'm ashamed of it, that I allowed power to corrupt to, to corrupt my conversation. Everybody's got clay feet. Is there no hero? Is there really nobody we can look to and say, there's the true model of what we're supposed to be? Fear not. Your king is coming, riding on a donkey. Maybe what we fear most in this world is accountability. Uh, guilt. Shame. You know, that, that somebody's going to find out our deepest, darkest secrets, <laughs> our, our worst sins, more than that, that we're going to have to be accountable, that we're going to have to face an eternal God and answer for the lives that we've lived. Fear not. Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, bringing salvation. Friends, he says here, if the king is here, then fear not. There's a certain confidence which we can approach life with. We can approach life with the confidence of knowing that he is truly worthy, and that he has no clay feet, that there is a hero worthy of our praise that will never, ever let us down, because he is truly perfect. We have a hero who comes onto the plate, a king who comes onto to the stage here, who, is, who frees us from despair, who says this world is not all there is to it, and one who offers us grace and forgiveness. Friends, we can live with the confidence of knowing the king has come, and he's worthy of our praise, and he's worthy of our attention and adulation friends let's worship the true king let's live life live life to the full Uh, john 10 talks about living life to this fullness to its fullness now that we have the king uh, he gives us full life real life true life as we sang earlier in one of the songs there is full life in him yes it's a hard life being a christian there are difficulties and hardships and you know you're not free from all of the pain and suffering of this world you may even have more suffering than you would have if you weren't a christian but nevertheless It's a fuller life. It's a better life, more amazing, more spectacular life to follow the true king. It's a life of victory over sin and temptation. I don't know what you're struggling with right now. Maybe it is some type of addiction. Uh, Who knows whether that's some substance that you're dealing with in your life, some temptation that just seems to keep getting the best of you. Fear not. We serve the victorious king. Continue to repent and trust in him. And in time, the Lord will give you victory, I think. And if not in this life, then in eternity. And friends, know for certain that our salvation is in him. 
we have a king who is worthy, and if our faith is in him, we can be sure of our salvation. It's one of the, I think, one of the greatest parts of our faith. We don't have to live in constant fear saying, I might, I might get into heaven. You know, if I continue to be a good person, if, I, if, my, if one side of my, my good deeds sort of outweigh my bad deeds, then I can maybe sneak through the pearly gates. <laughs> you know, that's not how it works. If we have Christ, we can be sure and we can approach life and even death with the confidence of knowing that we're his and he'll never forsake us. The king has come. Fear not. Look at verses 16. Uh, and onward to verse 18, he talks here about witness. The king is wonderful. Let's learn a little bit more about this king. He says in 16, his disciples, they did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, so they're already sort of uh, putting the conclusion to the story up from the front here. Jesus will be glorified. He wins in the end. If you didn't know that, reading up to this point in time. Uh, when Jesus is glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Uh, that the whole story, in a sense, is already written, and Jesus is fulfilling what was prophesied about him. Uh, he isn't just sort of a, a, a king who just happened out of nowhere to step onto the stage of history and do some amazing things. No, this is the one God has promised about right from the beginning of Scripture, and now he's here. He's the one who fulfills the Scriptures. Now, you might say, well, you know, riding on a donkey, you know, that, that they knew that was a prophecy about Jesus, so if Jesus just knew that. He gets on a donkey, and then he kind of fulfills prophecy. It's not really that big of a surprise. Anyone could have done that, right? I mean, if you know that's the prophecy, um, then right, anyone could just grab a donkey, ride the donkey, and say, hey, look, I'm fulfilling prophecy. Uh, that may be true of the donkey, <laughs> but there are multiple prophecies of Jesus. Actually, Josh McDowell, one uh, famous writer, says there are 322 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. How many of those do you think Jesus fulfills? 322, <laughs> exactly, all of them. I want to give you some of them up here. I didn't uh, list them all because we don't want to go through all of these. That would take too long. But here are some that Jesus fulfilled. Now, again, I can give you, if you're a skeptic, I'll give you the donkey, all right? You got the donkey. Maybe Jesus planned the donkey intentionally because he knew the prophecy was going to be, was already there. But all of these? Let's see. Uh, first of all, Jesus was born of a virgin. Uh, Jesus was called, called the Son of God. All this was said about who Jesus would be. That he'd be part of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he would be born in Bethlehem. You can't really have much control over where you're born. Uh, that he would be preceded by a messenger, clearly John the Baptist. Ministry That his ministry would begin in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, where he spent most of his ministry. That his ministry would be one of miracles. That he would teach in parables. That he would enter in Jerusalem on a donkey, as we're reading today. That he would be a light to the Gentiles, not just Israel. That he would ascend after uh, his resurrection to be with the Father. That he'd be seated at the right hand of God. That he would be betrayed by a friend. That he'd be sold for specifically 30 pieces of silver. That he'd be forsaken by all his disciples. That he'd be accused by false witnesses. That he would be silent before his accusers that he would be wounded and bruised, that he'd be smitten and spit upon, that his hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22, that he would be crucified along with thieves, that he would make intercession, prayer for those who persecute him, that his garments would be parted and lots would be cast, that gall and vinegar would be offered to him, 
that his bones would not be broken, which was typical. Remember, the two next to him, their bones were broken, but his specifically was not because he died earlier than them and they did not break his legs. His side would be pierced, that darkness would cover the land, that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. And of course, as we're going to look at next week, that he'd be resurrected. This king is the king who fulfills all of the prophecies, all of the promises of scripture leading up to him. He's a wonderful king. What else do we learn about him? Look at verse 17. The crowd that's there had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. In fact, much of the crowd there in Jerusalem is coming to see him because they heard about this very miracle. Uh, This was sort of a unique miracle. Jesus waited towards the end of his life um, at 33, towards close to this Holy Week to perform this miracle about Lazarus because I think it says something very important. Um, But you think about this miracle. Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. And so when he hears that his friend Lazarus is sick, what does he do? He waits and doesn't go see him, specifically. And his disciples say, hey, if you go, we can maybe, maybe you could heal him. He says, no, we're not going. He dies. And Jesus waits until four days later before he shows up. And at that point in time, everybody has lost hope. They say he's been dead for four days. There's no resuscitation happening here. There's no healing possible. He's dead. In fact, his body is beginning to decay in the tomb. Um, I like the old King James here. Uh, The way it describes it says, his body stinketh. That's how they describe it. His body has already begun to stink. It's already beginning to decay, Jesus. There's nothing that can be done. And what does Jesus do? Walks up to the tomb. Says, take away the stone. And Lazarus, come forth. And he comes up still tied in his shroud, you know, just (laughs) making his way outside of the tomb. That Jesus has the power even over death. There is nothing he can't do. He is a wonderful king. Not only does he heal the sick, not only does he do things like walk on water and calm storms, not only does he even raise the dead, he's a king who lays down his life for his people. You know, I used to be a little skeptical about Palm Sunday. And let me explain why. Because we're celebrating with palms the crowd that praised Jesus coming into Jerusalem. But you know what happens, right? I mean, by that Friday, the crowd is saying, crucify him, crucify him. So what are we celebrating? Are we part of a crowd that turns on him? Then one minute they're praising him, and the next minute they're they're turned away from him? And uh, it doesn't seem like maybe we should be associating ourselves with the crowd that's celebrating him on his triumphal entry. I used to be a little skeptical of Palm Sunday, but I've been turned around. Let me tell you why. Uh, Two things. First, one smaller, one bigger. The small thing is this, that most likely the crowd that praised him on his entry is not the crowd that called crucify him at the end of the week. So what happens in the beginning of the week is you have pilgrims who have come from all over Israel, mostly perhaps from Galilee in the north, where he did most of his miracles, and the surrounding regions outside of Jerusalem. So you have a huge crowd. Jerusalem swelled, I think Josephus says, to two or three million people. Most people believe that's an exaggeration for that, for that period of time. But you can imagine a huge crowd, probably hundreds of thousands of people, filled Jerusalem. These are all people from far away who have come to celebrate at the feast. They're the ones who praise him as king. By the end of the week, by Friday night, most of them have left. And the crowd that's left are the natives there in Jerusalem, and most of them have been influenced by the priests and the Sanhedrin to cry, crucify him. So most likely not the same crowd. The Bible never says it's the same crowd. That's just a preacher thing we do every once in a while and say, hey, one day they're saying this, another day they're saying that. That's one reason. But the second reason, and perhaps more importantly than that, Jesus accepts their praise. 
In fact, he welcomes it. And he rides in in a donkey to fulfill it. Because he is king. Even though they haven't understood what kind of king he really is, he truly is the king. It's not about him not being the king. It's about him redefining what kind of king he is. He's the king who suffers and dies for his people. Imagine that. You know, I was just thinking about this. Imagine a president, I'm not saying this, this president or any other president we've had recently, I'm just saying in general. Imagine a president who finds himself in Afghanistan and because the need is there, he runs out to the battlefield to save some of his troops and gets killed doing it. <laughs> we would consider him the greatest president our country's ever had, that he would willingly lay down his life to save people. Here Jesus is one week before the resurrection. Five days before the Passover and his betrayal and death. And he is declared as the king. He could do anything he wants at this point in time. He could say, build me a throne, build me a palace, and let's, let's praise me as, as the new king. He could do anything he wants. What does he do? He prepares for his death as a ransom for many. He's a wonderful king. Perhaps more wonderful <laughs> more wonderful than we even imagine him to be. He's the king who lays down his life to rescue his people. One thing I do think the crowd did very well there is they witness about him. Look at verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Uh, verse 17, uh, he says, uh, says specifically that the people were continuing to witness about him. They were bearing witness about him. Come meet this guy who can raise dead people. Uh, come meet this guy who walked up to a tomb and told the guy to come out, and he came out. I mean, this is the guy you've got to see. And people, crowds of people came to see him because of their witness. And I think we can learn something from them. <laughs> we have something even better than that. Not only is he the one who could raise dead people, he's the one who gave his life for us and rose himself from the grave, not just in a resuscitated way, but in a way that he would never die again, that he's the savior of all. Let's bear witness to him. Let's get this word out there about it. Let's tell people about this Jesus. You know, get, get on Facebook, because a lot of people are on Facebook, I notice. Share it. Hey, this is what I believe about Jesus, if you didn't know. Or hey, if you're looking for a church on Sunday, come to church and hear about this glorious Savior that we have. You know, I was thinking, this church was founded by a guy named Hezekiah Smith. Um, and Hezekiah Smith was an interesting guy. He was sort of the Billy Graham of New England. I mentioned Whitfield was the Billy Graham of 1700s. Uh, the guy that founded this church was sort of the Billy Graham of this area. Uh, he was an evangelist. That was his passion. That was his heart, to go out and share the good news. That's why he started this church right here. In fact, he started dozens of churches in this area. Dozens. I don't know if you know that. Um, we had an intern years ago um, who was going to the First Baptist Church in Yarmouth, Maine. And he came here, didn't realize the whole history of this church. And he said, I didn't know this, but uh, Hezekiah Smith planted my church there in Yarmouth. It's one of dozens and dozens of churches that he went around as an itinerant preacher and evangelist sharing the gospel to people all over the place and starting churches. And this was his home church. Uh, he started this church and pastored this church for years in the very beginning. Uh, friends, this church has right in its DNA, right in its founding DNA, a heart and passion for witness to get this good news out there that people could hear and be saved. It's had a long history since then, a lot of buildings, a lot of tradition, but its heart was for the gospel to be shared to the people around us. Uh, like these, this crowd here, let's bear witness to who he is. And then lastly, be ready. 
because the king is controversial. Be ready because the king is controversial. Verse 19, the Pharisees, now, you know, we hear the term Pharisee, we immediately think negative. Um, we use that as an insult, right? If you say about somebody, man, he or she is such a Pharisee, <laughs> that's not a compliment, right? In the first century, if you said about a guy, you say, hey, you know, he is such a Pharisee, you would say, well, thank you. <laughs> that's quite a compliment. Uh, Pharisees were the heroes. They were the good guys. They were the religious leaders of that day. They excelled in holiness, at least in the eyes of the people, um, and they stood out. Actually, when you think of the bad guys, you think of the priests, really. Uh, the priests were all gathered in Jerusalem around the temple only. That's where they worked, and they were sort of the compromisers to Rome. The Pharisees were scattered about all over the country, and they sort of led synagogues and things like that. They were the local pastors. They were considered the good guys. They were a bit self-righteous. You know, they kind of stood out, and they made a, made a show of their righteousness, but people would not have recognized them to be the bad guys. But when it comes to Jesus, clearly there's been controversy. Clearly there's been some opposition between them and him. Verse 19, the Pharisees are jealous. They've been jealous of Jesus right from the start, right from the start of his ministry. You see that you are gaining nothing, which I think is very revealing, right? They look at Jesus and not say, they don't say, is he the Messiah? Is what he's saying true? Could this be the fulfillment of prophecy? They don't even, they're not even interested in that. Their only concern is we're not gaining anything. <laughs> what are we getting out of this? Some of the Pharisees sat on the Sanhedrin, which is the sort of the ruling council, and they're worried that if we have a king in our midst, that Rome's going to come and be unhappy with us and take away our whole city from us and put somebody even worse than Pilate in here. They're only worried about personal gain. I think that should tell you something about them. But they say even more than that, if we're gaining nothing, look, the world has gone after him. Uh, that's an exaggeration uh, or hyperbole in their minds. Uh, it's just within Israel at this point in time. Uh, but I think they spoke ironically. <laughs> they spoke far more than they understood. And John knows that and he uses that. Uh, because right in the next section you have two Greeks who come and inquire about Jesus. So Gentiles now are taking notice of this king. And they want to know more about him. He's not just the king of the Jews. As we said, he's the king of the world. He's the king of all that is. Jesus was controversial right from the start. Uh, he was controversial right from his birth, literally, uh, from his birth. Remember that Joseph didn't know what to do with this pregnant wife, that he, uh, his pregnant fiance that he had. And uh, actually, we, we have from outside resources from the scripture that there was a rumor that Jesus was born out of wedlock it was, uh, that by a Roman soldier. That's kind of what people said about him. So right from the start, but then when he begins his ministry, that's when the controversy really starts picking up and a lot of heat gets uh, started here. Jesus was someone who did not go to a rabbinic school. Um, he did not come from good Pharisee stock. Uh, he was the son of a carpenter. He was unschooled. And yet here he is, this rabbi that goes around preaching and people flock to him to hear him. And not only that, he constantly challenges the Pharisees. He constantly goes against what they have to say. So he says, you have heard that it was said in the law. Really what he means is their interpretation of the law. But I tell you something different. So he's challenging the authorities regularly. He's doing things like healing on the Sabbath. And he's not praising the Pharisees around him. He's extremely controversial to the point where they want to not only kill him. Uh, we even read in the previous chapter, they want to kill Lazarus. Which I think is interesting. He already died once and now they want to kill him again. Poor guy. Um, but uh, they, they're not happy with Jesus. He's extremely Controversial, And I would say the same is true for us to understand that if we follow Jesus, we follow the controversial king. 
To follow him is not to be loved by everybody. To follow him is to have people at times turn away from you. I know there are people in this room who, because you follow Jesus, you've had family members, not necessarily disown you, but say, you know, you're not really invited to the next wedding and the next get-together or the next situation. You, you're, you, there's some cost to following Jesus. He's the controversial king. Around the world, of course, people have many times lose their lives to follow him. He's a challenging king. He calls us to hard times and hard things. Uh, if you follow Jesus, your life will be changed. <laughs> that's one thing is for certain. Uh, I, I love um, Lord of the Rings. I mentioned that. In fact, I have a little picture of... of uh, throw that up, the picture up there, Josh, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, anyone know where that is? Yell it out. The Hob- okay, right, Hobbiton, right? I just said I love Lord of the Rings, so that wasn't that hard. But it's, uh, it's uh, New Zealand, right? That's where they filmed... Uh, they filmed all of it there. But a couple of quotes, I think, uh, from, from uh, Tolkien. Tolkien was a believer, was a Christian. Uh, but he's, he said this, It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. This is from the book. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. I think that's also true of following Jesus. Uh, if you follow him, you hit the road, and you have no idea where it might lead you to. There's a quote from the movie, The Hobbit, that was not in the book, but it's still a good one. Bilbo says to Gandalf, the wizard, can you promise that I will come back before he leaves? And Gandalf says, no. And if you do, you will not be the same. I think that is uh, insightful, too, of what it means to follow Christ. He's the controversial king, and he demands complete obedience to follow him with open arms wherever he would lead. Uh, I remember saying, back in high school, even into college, the one thing I will never be is a pastor. (laughs) I will never, I hated public speaking. I dreaded it. Actually, I had a public speaking class. Uh, I think it was the only class I got a D in in high school uh, because there were three speeches we were absolutely necessary you had to do um, or else you get a zero, you know. Uh, the first one I suffered through brutally and uh, it was not fun at all. The second one I skipped and took a zero. And then the third one I asked to do with the teacher after school, just me and her, which is the, kind of the whole point of public speaking, right? I hate, hated the idea of being, getting in front of people and have, having to speak. It was the one thing I would not do. And yet here I am. Uh, I never thought that uh, I would end up walking in the Himalayas in Nepal, sharing the gospel with people. I never thought that I would be with this church family and sharing life together with you. Uh, following Jesus may take you places you have no idea where he's going to lead you. He's a controversial king. And there's opposition. I remember one time uh, when we were in Nepal, I was sharing with, uh, Paul and I were talking to somebody, a uh, Westerner, so we just started talking and, and you know, she seemed very friendly and happy. Wow, you know, love for the country. And then she said, what do you guys do? And uh, Paul said, well, we're here. Uh, it's kind of doing missionary work. Oh, I've had enough of this conversation. She turned around and walked away. Immediately insulted by the fact that anyone would come to a place to share the gospel. Friends, if we serve a controversial king who's not loved by everybody and calls us to follow him no matter where and no matter what. Jesus the king has come. Fear not. Fear not. The quote is, most men live lives of quiet desperation and die with their song still inside them. That's Thoreau and Walden, by the way. But the king has freed us from that desperation 
He's shown us that this world is not all there is to it. That there is grace and forgiveness in him. That we don't have to fear even the grave or the judgment and accountability for sin because we have him. Witness because the king is wonderful. (laughs) We have the greatest king. A king greater than any king in this world. The true king. The king of kings. Let's be loud in our witness about him. And be ready. To follow Jesus is to follow a controversial king. Friends, remember that this king, the king that we serve, the king that we worship here on Palm Sunday, is also the king of the cross. He's the king, as we see right behind us, he leads us, yes, into Jerusalem and all the celebration that it comes that we see in him. But ultimately, his life ends as a sacrifice for sinners, as a servant for others. Of course, we know what happens on Sunday. There is victory after the grave, that we serve a king who is victorious, over life and death. And those who follow him will experience both. We, in a sense, experience the hardship and difficulties of following a king who goes to the cross. Uh, Jesus never said, you're free of suffering. You may hear that from some TV preachers. Uh, That's not how it works. To follow Jesus, like I said, sometimes means more suffering. We're we're following the king who lays down his life as a ransom. We're following the king who's controversial. But we are following the king that always ends in victory. He's the one who rose from the grave and those who put their faith in him will experience the same victory over sin and judgment over the world over Satan and temptation and ultimately over death itself as he draws us to himself for eternity would you pray with me our gracious father we do thank you so very much for Palm Sunday the day that the crowd finally was able to celebrate Jesus as king, even though they had only an inkling of an understanding of what that meant for him to be the king. Still, Lord, they spoke rightly when they said he is the king of the Jews, when they said he's the king of the world, when they declared, Hosanna, save us, Lord. And so, Lord, with the crowd, we can join in with a greater depth of understanding and meaning when we say, Hosanna, save us, Lord. We mean not from this world alone, but from for eternity. And when we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we mean it as the one who is the Lord himself in our midst, present with us. When we declare him king, we know he's the king who went to the cross for us and rose from the grave. Bless us this week, Lord. I pray this would be a a week of reflection for all of us as we serve the true king, uh, as we meet together, Lord willing, on Wednesday for the Passover, Seder presentation, and some time of fellowship, but also into next Sunday, Lord, as we meet to celebrate his resurrection from the dead, the the turning point of history, where the grave is overcome, not only for him, but for all who have faith in him. Thank you, Father. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.